The scripture reading today comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah, by way of the desert, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of noon. Shelter the outcasts, do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more, and destruction has ceased, and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, the throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tents of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. The word of the Lord. Morning, Cornerstone. It's good to see you this morning and get to be with you and to get to share God's word with you. I'm honored to get to be the uh, last person to preach an exclusively online service to you. And in celebration of that, I'm preaching to you this morning from Dry Creek Baptist Church in the middle of Dry Creek, Louisiana. This is a really special place to me. This is the church that I grew up in. And the Lord has used this place mightily in my own life. So it's exciting to get to share God's word with you this morning from here. So Sarah and I have been staying with her parents for the last few weeks. And as we've been staying here at her parents' house, this is the same house that she grew, grew up in. Almost every day I've been driving from that house on Highway 394 into what we'll call downtown Dry Creek. And uh, this is a drive that I've made many times. But the most, frequently, most frequent times that I made this drive was growing up as a teenager whenever Sarah and I were dating. See, this is the highway that ran from Sarah's house to my house. And I made this drive just about every Saturday night trying to make sure that I made curfew. I can't remember if it was 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock now, but it's a road that I'm very, very familiar with. It's amazing uh, how much memory is associated with place. And so as I've been making this drive every day while we've been staying here in Dry Creek, it's been taking me back to uh, my dating days with Sarah. And so this morning, I want to frame, frame the message in the context of this process of what dating is and what you're trying to do in dating, this is the idea that you're trying to get to know someone and to grow a relationship with them. And particularly, I'm thinking about uh, what I conceive of as a three-step process where you're interested in someone and so you want to develop a relationship with them. So the first thing that you do is you learn what they love. And then you learn to love what they love. And then finally, the third step is you join with that person in doing what they love. Let me give you an example. So whenever Sarah and I started dating, Sarah learned very quickly that I love Houston Astros baseball. Now, Sarah was a marginal baseball fan at best. And if she had to identify a team, she was sadly an Atlanta Braves fan. But as Sarah and I dated, Sarah learned to love what I loved. She became an Astros fan. And then she actually took the step of joining with me in doing what I love. And for Sarah's first Christmas present that she ever got me was Astros tickets for us to go and see the Astros play together. So she learned what I loved, learned to love what I loved, and then joined with me in doing that. And so I hope that you're here on the live stream uh, this morning or listening to this recording this morning because you want to know God, 
because you want to know him, you want to be in relationship with him, you want to love him, and you want to learn what he loves. And so our three framing questions this morning are going to be, what does God love? Do you love what God loves? And will you join God in what he loves? And we're going to an unusual place in the Bible to explore this. We're going to be uh, looking this morning at Isaiah chapters 15 and 16. And uh, I'm willing to bet that this morning you're going to hear the best sermon you've ever heard on Isaiah 15 and 16. Because I'm betting this is the only sermon that you've ever heard on Isaiah chapters 15 and 16. This is a really special passage for me. This is actually whenever I was in college, whenever I got done with my Hebrew classes, the first Hebrew exegesis paper I ever wrote was on this passage. I was in way over my head. I'm still in way over my head, but it's a really, really special text to me for that. So Isaiah chapters 15 and 16 is, uh, we're here in the middle of the prophetic book of Isaiah. And this is part of a collection of prophecies that address foreign nations that ancient Israel would have known. This occurs in Isaiah uh, 13 through 23. There's a bunch of foreign nations addressed. And Isaiah chapters 15 and 16 specifically address the nation of Moab. Now, this might be unfamiliar territory to you. Even most Bible scholars don't spend time in these texts. But I think that sometimes it can be really exciting and exhilarating to go to new places. Because often whenever you go to new places or unfamiliar places, this whenever you get surprised by new vistas. And so I hope that as we look at this text, you see, you just catch a, a fresh vision for who God is and his character. So as we jump into this text, I want to give you a little bit of background about the nation of Moab. So you'll see on the map that's on the screen right now that Moab is located on the east side of the Dead Sea. This is part of the modern territory of the nation of Jordan. And Moab is here in brown on the east side of the Dead Sea. And then here we have another map that shows a closer up view of the nation of Moab. Now I wanted to show you this closer up view because one of the things that's really difficult about reading Isaiah 15 and 16 is it mentions a lot of city names. A lot of Moabite cities and what's happening in those cities, lots of rivers, all these details about the geography of Moab. Now, if you'll notice on this map that I have up on the screen for you, it has a lot of these cities listed here. But what do you see at the end of the names of most of those cities? You see question marks. So rest assured, if you don't know where these cities are, I also don't know where most of these cities are. Archaeologists don't know where most of these cities are, so don't get thrown by all the city names and place names as we read through this passage. So if we look to the Bible for the history of the nation of Moab, they have uh, some really, really um, unimpressive beginnings. We might even say um, really dark beginnings. The nation of Moab, uh, these are the descendants of Lot and his daughter. So the nation of Moab actually has incestuous origins. We come to the story of the Exodus as Moses and the Israelites approach the promised land. The Moabites resist the Israelites. They don't resist them militarily. They resist them religiously. Balak, the king of Moab, calls on a foreign prophet named Balaam to come and curse Israel on their way to the promised land. And after that plan is thwarted, Moab actually engages in a plot to entangle Israel in idolatry. And they are successful in doing so, and it's a disaster. But because of this, um, this role that Moab plays in resisting Israel, when we get to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 23 
actually tells us that Moabites are not allowed to worship in the temple. They're not allowed to worship as part of the assembly of God's people because of what they've done. And as we continue reading in the Bible, especially in the books of Judges and the books of Kings, uh, Moab remains a perennial enemy of the people of Israel. Now, I'm showing you this other picture. That's a picture just to show you a little bit what the terrain and the geography of Moab looks like. You'll see it's not an incredibly lush land. It doesn't support a lot of vegetation. Economically, Moab was primarily centered on sheep herding. Uh, and uh, in the northern part, they were able to grow some vineyards. So Moab is known for its sheep and for its wine. And religiously, the Moabites worshipped a god called Kamosh. And uh, Kamosh is um, associated with the Ammonite god that you've probably read more about in the Bible named Molech, who's associated with child sacrifice. So this is a little bit of the background of the people of Moab. And what we see in Isaiah 15 and 16 is primarily an announcement of doom and destruction that falls on Moab. When we get this in verse 1, Isaiah 15:1, an oracle concerning Moab, because our of Moab, that's a city name, is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone or Moab is destroyed. Because Kir of Moab is laid waste is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. And so this is the announcement of destruction on the land of Moab. Now, scholars aren't entirely sure to what exact events the destruction refers to. It might be the Assyrian invasion, or it might have been the Babylonian invasion that followed that. But after the Babylonian invasion of Moab, the Moabites cease to be a people. They exit the record of history after that point, and their land was later um, settled by Arabian tribes. Is this a little bit of background about Moab as we come now to actually looking at the text and the message that God has for us in it? So this morning, we're going to be looking first at the structure of Isaiah chapters 15 and 16, and then we'll be pivoting off of that and talking about the message of Isaiah chapters 15 and 16. So as we come to the structure of our passage this morning, as, as 21st century Americans, we typically think and write in a linear fashion. That is, we go from point A to point B to point C. However, ancient Hebrew literature tends to follow a more symmetrical pattern of organization. A good way to think about this is perhaps instead of thinking about it like A, B, C, we can think about it as A, B, A. A good example of this is the fact that even the Bible's narrative follows the structure of creation, fall, new creation, a, B, A. And so our passage this morning follows this kind of simple A, B, A structure where the beginning and end of the passage uh, talk about the destruction of the nation of Moab. But then in the middle, at the pivot of the passage, we have this surprising note of hope that is offered for the Moabites. Now we can go a little bit deeper in our analysis of the way that the passage is structured. So we begin the passage begins and ends with the description of the futility of Moabite worship. And we see this as we read uh, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 15. It says, He has gone up to the temple and to Debon, to the high places to weep. Now, the high places, um, the ancient peoples uh, thought of the tops of mountains and hills as the abode of the gods. So naturally, you build your temples and your sites of worship on the high places. This is describing in the context of the disaster that is coming, the Moabites go up to their places of worship to weep before their gods. Over Nebo and over Medeba, 
Moab wells. On every head is baldness, every beard is shorn. In the streets they wear sackcloth. In the streets, on the housetops and in the squares, everyone wells and melts in tears. So for verses 2 and 3, it begins by saying that the Moabites go up to weep. And then it ends where it's where in your translation, I'm reading from the ESV this morning, it says everyone melts in tears. The Hebrew more literally says here, goes down in tears. So they go up weeping and then they go down weeping as well. So in other words, does their going up to weep before their gods accomplish anything? No, it doesn't. They come back down in the exact same state of lamentation having visited the high places of their gods. And we see this reflected at the very end of the passage. Read with me in Isaiah 16, 12. It says that when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high place, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. In other words, their religious practices come to naught. They profit them nothing. So the passage begins and ends on the note of the futility of Moabite worship. Now, if we move on to the second and second to last units, these describe the destruction of Moab and the ensuing lamentation. So read with me Isaiah 15, 4 through 9. Heshbon and Eliyahu cry out. Their voice is heard as far as Jahaz. Therefore, the armed men of Moab cry aloud. His soul trembles. My heart cries out for Moab. Her fugitives flee to Zoar, to Eglath Shilashiah. For at the ascent of Luhith, they go up weeping. On the road to Horonaim, they raise a cry of destruction. The waters of Nimrim are a desolation. The grass is withered, the vegetation fells, the greenery is no more. Therefore, the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they carry away over the brook of willows. For a cry is gone around the land of Moab. Her wailing reaches to Agliam. Her wailing reaches to Be'er Elim. For the waters of Debon are full of blood. For I will bring upon Debon even more, a lion for those of Moab who escape for the remnant of the land." There's a lot of strong, evocative, poetic imagery in this section, but basically it's describing the destruction of Moab, both with militaristic imagery and with imagery describing the destruction of their, of their crops. And the response from the Moabites you hear over and over and over again, they are wailing and they are weeping. They are lamenting this destruction. And this is mirrored in chapter 16. So read now with me chapter 16, verses 6 through 11. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how, how proud he is, of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence. In his idle boasting, he's not right. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail, mourn utterly stricken for the raisin cakes of Kir Hareset. For the fields of Heshbon languish, and the vine of Sibma. The lords of the nations have struck down its branches, which reached to Jazer and strayed to the desert. Its shoots spread abroad and passed over the sea. Therefore, I weep with the weeping of Jazer for the vine of Sibma. I, I drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Eliada. For over your summer fruit and your harvest, the shout has ceased. And joy and gladness are taken away from the fruitful field. And in the vineyards, no songs are sung, no cheers are raised. No treader treads out wine in the presses. 
I have put an end to the shouting. Therefore, my inner parts moan like a lyre for Moab, and my inmost self for Kir Hareset. So this section also describes the destruction of Moab, both as a military defeat and in terms of the destruction of their crops. And it also describes lamenting and weeping over Moab's destruction. But here, the one who is weeping and lamenting has changed. The Moabites are silent now in chapter 16. And it is God who takes up the lament to weep over the destruction of the people of Moab. And this is a theme we'll return to shortly. This brings us now to the center of the passage. This is the section that describes a surprising offering of hope for the Moabites. And we begin by looking at the presentation of the son of David as a refuge for the Moabites. Look with me me at chapter 16, verse 1. This is addressed as a command to the Moabites. It says, Send the lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah, by way of the desert, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. So I told you earlier that the Moabites, um, sheep herding was a major part of their economy. And so whenever they gave tribute to foreign nations, they would give tribute in the form of sheep. They would give tribute in the form of rams. And so Moab is supposed to send tribute to the king who rules on Mount Zion. And then let's look at another vision of this king, some more information about who this king is to whom they're supposed to send tribute and who they're supposed to seek refuge in in the day of their distress. So pick up with me in the middle of verse 4. It says, When the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased, and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land. In other words, Moab's destroyer will pass away. This terrorizing threat will not last forever. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love. And on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. So Moab is promised here that their oppressor is going to pass away and will be replaced by another king. Not replaced by a Moabite king, but replaced by a Judean king who comes from the line of King David. And this king will not be like their oppressor who comes to trample them underfoot, but will be a king who gives them justice and who restores righteousness to the people of Moab. He will be a refuge for them. And then this brings us to the very center point, the pivot of this entire uh, passage in verses 3 and 4. And this is where a command is given to the people of Israel and how they are supposed to respond to Moabite refugees on the day of their destruction. Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of noon, shelter the outcast, do not reveal the fugitive, let the outcast of Moab sojourn among you, be a shelter to them from the destroyer. So the center point of the passage is the command to the Israelites to grant asylum to Moabite refugees on the day of their destruction. So this is This is, in general, the structure of Isaiah chapters 15 and 16. And this moves us to what is the message of this passage for us? What is God saying to us? You might be saying to yourself, 
I don't know any Moabites. I actually think it would be impossible for you to know any Moabites. No one knows any Moabites. So what, what do we do with this passage, Isaiah 15 and 16? Well, I told you earlier that Isaiah 15 and 16 is part of a larger collection of prophecies that address foreign peoples. They take up the entirety of, of chapters 13 through 23 of Isaiah. These prophecies address Babylon, Assyria, the Philistines, the Syrians, uh, the Cushites, Egypt, Tyre, uh, Duma, many of these countries that would have been familiar to ancient Israelites. And I think what's happening in these, what, what we're going to call nations' collections, what happens in these nations' collections, it is, it is the rhetoric of list-making. And here's what I mean by that, the rhetoric of list-making. If I wanted to explain to you that I really love farm animals, I can do that in one of two ways. I can tell you, hey, I really, really love farm animals. Or I can say, I love horses. I love cows. I love chickens. I love pigs, sheep, alpacas. And you would get the message from that for me listing off these farm animals by, pay, by focusing on these particular animals. You would get the message that I'm saying something larger and more general about my love for farm animals. Or think about the way that the classic children's book Green Eggs and Ham works. The character in the book, I don't know his name. He's not Sam I Am. The other character who's not Sam I Am, he makes it clear that he does not like green eggs and ham on a boat with a goat, in the rain, on a train, uh, in a box with a fox, in a house with a mouse, all these ways. And the repetition of these particular items in the list has a way of collectively making a larger statement. And I think this is part of why whenever we read in the prophetic books, Isaiah 13 through 23 addresses every imaginable neighbor of ancient Israel, because together this makes a comprehensive and vivid statement of how God feels about the nations of the earth. And so as we read about this particular nation, Moab, I want you to see that Moab is not just Moab. God is saying something about his heart for all nations by means of this prophecy about the nation of Moab. And so God has a message for us this morning in this text. The first thing that we see in this text is we see the folly of false worship exposed. We see this at the beginning and end of the passage as we see Moab's pleas to its gods fall unanswered. And we see that Moab's gods are not the only thing in which they are trusting. For example, we see specifically it said that Moab's wealth is carried away in the day of destruction. The wealth in which they trusted gets carried away. We also see Moab singled out for being a very prideful people and that their boastings ring hollow. And so these three things, their idols, their boasting, and their material wealth all get shown to be foolishness whenever their destruction comes. These things all would have made perfect sense in times of prosperity, but they become absolutely worthless whenever the day of their visitation happens. And this is the principle that sometimes unexpected and cataclysmic events can shift our perspective on what's valuable and what's not valuable. For example, let's just imagine that some event could happen that could take something as lowly and maligned as toilet paper and make it into veritable currency, right? Well, we know what this is. And so it's the same way with the destruction of Moab. But I want you to see that the destruction of Moab in this passage actually presages a judgment of God on all nations that is described elsewhere in the prophets as the day of the Lord. 
And if you want an introduction to the day of the Lord, I'd encourage you after the service this morning to go read Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2 gives us a great description of what the day of the Lord is. And the day of the Lord is basically the day whenever God visits the earth and renders judgment. And the day of the Lord is described in, in Isaiah chapter 2 condemns all three of these things that we see here mentioned about the Moabites. The people's wealth is destroyed on the day of the Lord. Your, your silver and your gold become worthless. The peoples abandon their idols. They literally go in the field and throw their idols away to the wild animals. And the refrain that's repeated throughout the description of the day of the Lord in Isaiah 2 is that the arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride will be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. So as you read about the destruction of Moab in Isaiah 15 and 16, it warns us to prepare for the coming day of the Lord. And you might think that you don't worship Kamosh or you don't worship idols or those kinds of things. And I, and I get that. I, I don't either. I don't know anyone who does. But that doesn't mean that this text becomes irrelevant for you. For one thing, a lot of people in our world do worship idols, and we should not discount the relevance of this text for our world. Another thing is, though, also, is that your religious system or the religious system of our context is not as different from Moabite religion as you might at, at first glance think. The Moabites were polytheist. The Moabites most certainly believed in the existence of Yahweh. But they believed in the existence of Yahweh as one of, a, uh, of an array of gods. And they devoted their worship uh, primarily to Kamosh and Baal as well. And there is a tremendous temptation and pressure in our context to affirm multiple and contradictory religious claims and moral claims as well. There is a temptation and a pressure to accept religious pluralism in our context which I don't think is so different from the kind of religion practiced in the ancient world. And right now, in our current context, you look foolish if you reject that. And you look even worse than foolish. You look mean. You get called a bigot if you reject this kind of religious system. But I think that this passage encourages, encourages us that even though this seems like a, this seems like a foolish or a, a narrow-minded position to hold now, on the day of the Lord, exclusive devotion to the Lord will be shown to be the wise position. And religious pluralism will be shown to be folly, just as much as the Moabites' worship of Kamosh was shown to be folly at their destruction. So I hope that this passage will encourage you to resist that temptation and will give you endurance as you continue to believe in the exclusiveness of salvation through Jesus. I hope that it encourages you to cling to that. I hope that this passage challenges you to consider the existence of any materialism within your own heart? Are you trusting in your wealth? What happened in your heart whenever the stock market plummeted a few months ago? What did that reveal about what you really trust in, what you rely on? Because on the day of the Lord, your silver and gold will be worthless. Also, I hope that this passage encourages you to forsake pride and to seek humility. Jesus taught that whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so this passage is an encouragement to us to seek humility and to not follow in the boastful and prideful ways of Moab. So I hope that this passage gives you perspective. I hope it reveals the false gods in your life. And I hope that it moves you as the folly of false worship is exposed. I hope that it, it moves you to repentance. 
If this is you, or if these are things that, or, or the Lord has brought other things to mind, I hope that you will turn from those. Cast your idols to the wild animals now. Re- repent of these things before the Lord. And here's the good news. The day of the Lord and the prophets is generally described as a day of God's wrath. The Bible is really clear that whenever Jesus died on the cross, that, the wrath, that that wrath of God, that wrath of God stored up for all nations on the day of the Lord was poured out on Jesus. And that if you will repent of your sins now, and if you will cling to Jesus instead, instead of your pride, instead of your possessions, instead of the promises of false gods and religious systems, if you'll cling to Jesus, then there remains no wrath for you on the day of the Lord. So I pray that this passage would encourage you to repent of your sins and to place your faith in Jesus and to cling to him. This passage also reveals to us the complex heart of God. In this passage, there is a dizzying juxtaposition of God's roles. God is Moab's judge. He is the one who is bringing about their destruction. And Moab is depicted as guilty. They're getting their just desserts. Yet, God is the God who weeps over the people of Moab. Look back with me at 16.9. It says, Therefore I, God is the I here, therefore I weep with the weeping of Jazer for the vine of Sibma. I drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Eliala. We go down to verse 11. Therefore my inner parts moan like a lyre for Moab, and my inmost self for Kir Hareset. And so this reveals to us that though God is the judge in this passage and he is executing criminals, it shows us he takes no pleasure in it. It reminds us of Ezekiel 18 where we read that the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but desires that they should turn from their ways. God is a God who delights in mercy and in forgiveness. He is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He forgives iniquity and sin and transgression. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And so we see this amazing picture of God weeping over the people of Moab. Now, it might seem strange to you, the idea of a God who weeps. Maybe your idea of who God is is much more proper, has better manners, something like this. But to the ancients, the idea of a weeping God or goddess would not have been an unusual idea. We see this in this group of texts called the Sumerian City Laments. I bet you were not expecting to hear about Sumerian city laments this morning. Sumerian city laments, city laments, um, these were written in Sumerian. And they all are laments written about the destruction of Sumerian cities at the end of the third millennium BC. Specifically the city of Ur, of Abraham's fame, Ur of the Chaldeans. And these are, I guess, like the ancient counterpart, like modern blues music in some sense. But a prominent uh, motif in Sumerian city laments is that the patron deity of the city that's been destroyed um, weeps over the city in the song, weeps over the city, laments over the city. So the idea of a, of a god who weeps over the destruction of the city wouldn't have struck an ancient audience as unusual. But what would have struck an ancient audience as unusual is over whom Yahweh is weeping. This is not Jerusalem that God is weeping for in this passage. It's Moab that he weeps for. And in fact, if we go to chapter 16, verse 4, 
I'm reading from my ESV text here, which says, let the outcast of Moab sojourn among you. In the traditional Hebrew text here, it actually says, my fugitives, that is, Moab. Where God actually calls Moab his own people in the passage. And this is not unique to this text. If we turn over to Isaiah chapter 19, in the middle of a prophecy about the nation of Egypt, here's what we read. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So Egypt and Assyria sit on equal standing with Israel as God's people in this passage. And so that passage in Isaiah 19 and what we read here about God's attitude towards the Moabites, these show us so clearly that God is not a tribal deity, nor is he even a national deity. He is a global, universal God, and all peoples are his people, and he loves them. And so let us remember for a moment that the Moabites are not a neutral party for Israel. They are racial and national enemies. And so this passage challenges Israelite nationalism. And I pray this morning that you will allow this passage to challenge American nationalism as well. Let this passage challenge who you see yourself as and what people you primarily identify yourself as part of. And let it challenge also your racial biases. And so we come back to these, these framing questions this morning. The question is, what does God love? Or, who, or whom does God love? And what we see here clearly, God loves all peoples. God loves all nations. And so the second question is, do you love what God loves? Do you weep over what God weeps for? So we see in this passage the complex heart of God revealed. And so pray to share God's affections for our world. The next thing that we see that God has to say to us in Isaiah 15 and 16 is we see a just king promised. We come back to this idea in 16 verses 4 and 5 of this contrast between the oppressor that's going to pass away and the king who's going to sit in the tent of David. And we know this to be Jesus of Nazareth. And it says that this king is a king who seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. So he is a just king. He's a king who seeks justice. Now, the concept of justice in the Bible can have uh, two different senses. Justice can be retributive. What that means is that justice can be conceived of as handing out just penalties to criminals. Justice means that in the Bible. But justice in the Bible can also be restorative. And I think, uh, I think that usually whenever we encounter the word justice in the Bible, this is primarily what it means. And I think it's what it means in our text. This is the idea that justice means the restoration of society. It means care for the vulnerable and the establishment of just relations between peoples. Let me give you some examples of this use. Listen to Jeremiah 22.3. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness. And deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Listen to Proverbs 31. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. 
open your mouth, judge righteously, or, or rightly bring forth justice. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. This passage is describing the Messianic king, Jesus, as a king who brings restoration and justice. And we've seen this before. We see this in Isaiah 11, particularly, that describes the, the, the Messianic king as a king who actually wears justice as his belt. Uh, justice is, is the belt of, of his waist, is what Isaiah 11 says. But then it says this in verse 10. This is not just for Israel that he brings about justice and restoration. It says in Isaiah 11:10 that the nations will seek him, and his resting place will be glorious. And so the good news of Isaiah chapter 16 is that the son of David, the messianic king, is not just a, a king of hope for Israel. He's a king of hope for all nations, including Moabite refugees here. And so this is such good news for us, isn't it? Because I don't know about you, but I don't physically descend from Abraham. I don't come from Jacob or any of the 12 tribes that descend from him. But I read in this text that Jesus is the king that God has appointed for me. And he's the king that God has appointed for the Moabites as well. And so we see in this passage a just king promised. And so I encourage you, set your hope on Jesus and on his kingdom. Seek refuge in him. I hope that this passage evokes within you the prayer of John at the end of Revelation. And just prays, you know, come Lord Jesus, that we would hope in Jesus and his kingdom. Next, we see that the message that God has for us in Isaiah 15 and 16 is we see a response of mercy is commanded. This is the center of the passage where God commands the Israelites to welcome in Moabite refugees to grant them asylum, to not hand them over to their pursuers. This granting of asylum to refugees is a particular expression of a general idea in the Bible of care for the vulnerable and the poor, what we just described as justice. One of the amazing things that we see here is that the vision of the future, the vision of a future just messianic kingdom is supposed to drive present action in the world for ancient Israel. Our vision for what God is going to do in the future through Jesus' second coming, these are the things that we should be seeking in the present. A technical way to say this would be to say that our eschatology drives our ethics. Our eschatology, that is our beliefs and hopes for what God will do in the future should affect the way that we live in the present and the way that we treat our world. So what does God love? Do you love what God loves? And will you join God in what he loves? And there are a lot of different angles we can take this particular set of verses on how we apply these. This command to Israel to welcome in Moabite refugees. We can think about this along racial lines. We can think about this nationally. But I really want to focus in on the issue of refugees this morning. These are, uh, these are Moabite refugees who are seeking asylum. And I realize that right now, maybe um, granting asylum to refugees and the such is not the hot-button political issue of the moment. Um, but it was a few years ago, and I'm sure that it will be again. And so I think it's important that we think carefully and biblically about it. Now, as we think about this issue from the perspective of political policy. I recognize that there are complex issues at stake with balancing a concern like 
say, national security with mercy in the form of granting asylum to refugees. And I don't particularly understand the complexities of that discussion. But my concern this morning is why is our impulse to primarily frame the question of refugee care in the context of political policy? What would happen if we as a church reframe the way that we think about that issue, primarily thinking of it as citizens of heaven? And if we shifted our perspective on that, and if we sought how we can serve and love refugees, no matter what any major or minor political party has to say about it. There are many refugees who are here in the States already and who need our love and care, and a lot of them live in Lowell. And I, I hope that as you read this passage, the command that God gives to Israel to welcome in refugees, I pray that God would stir your heart to begin seeking how he would have you be a part of that here. Now, I usually like to, at this point, I like to give very concrete methods of application, but as I've been praying and looking over this text this week, there just hasn't been one that's become clear, and I think there may be a few reasons for that. For one thing, I don't have a particular ministry to direct you towards for this. Um, the searches that I've done for refugee care and refugee ministry in the area, there are no evangelical ministries in our area that I've been able to find that do this. Most of the ministries that do this in the name of Christianity would be either Roman Catholic ministries or ministries that are part of churches. Uh, they're very liberal forms of Christianity that no longer hold the Orthodox doctrine. So I don't really know who to point you to for this. I, if you're thinking on an international scale, I'd encourage you to check out Baptist Global Response. You can go to gobgr.org uh, go and see some of their refuge ministry that they do. But I don't really know where to point you for this. But I also think that that maybe isn't the point of this morning's message. As I've been thinking and meditating on this text, the thing that, just, that the Lord's been doing in my heart is and what I hope he does in yours through this. I hope that you see God's heart in this passage. And I hope it creates within you a hunger to reflect that heart. I hope that this builds up within you the desire to serve and extend mercy, to reflect the coming of Jesus' kingdom to our world. And so really what I hope that you do in response to this plea to welcome in Moabite refugees that we see at the center of this passage, I hope it moves you to pray. And I hope that you begin by praying that God would give you his heart for the nations. And then that you would pray that God would show you how you can join him in his work. And I'm really confident that God's going to answer that prayer for you. And he's going to answer it in a way that I don't know yet. I don't know the practicalities of how he's going to lead you in that. But I think that is a good prayer to pray. And I think that that is a step towards faithfulness. I also hope that as we look at this, and as you pray about how God would have you move forward on this, um, this is a particular area in thinking about issues of justice and caring for the people around us. This is an area where I think um, our pastor, Jonathan, has an extremely... Um, extremely strong insight as our leader. This is something that Jonathan has challenged me so much with over the past four years of sitting under his leadership. And I think it's probably in my time here at Cornerstone, the thing that I've seen change the most in the way that I think about the gospel. And so I hope that this moves you both to pray and ask God how you can join him in his work, talk to the missions team about ideas that they have on this. I hope that it also is an encouragement to you to continue to follow Jonathan's wise leadership as he guides our church on these kinds of ministry.
So, but we do see here that, the, that the, the message from Isaiah 15 and 16 is we see a response of mercy commanded. And I hope that you'll ask God how you can join him in extending mercy to his world. So the, the message of Isaiah 15 and 16, we see the folly of false worship exposed. Would you repent of religious pluralism, materialism, and pride and trust in Jesus? We hear the complex heart of God revealed. Would you pray to share God's affections for our world? We see a just king promised. Set your hope on Jesus and his kingdom. And we hear a response of mercy commanded. Ask God how you can join him extending mercy to his world. And so I leave you with these three questions. What is it that God loves? Do you love what God loves? And will you join God? in what he loves. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. Um, thank you so much, Lord, for the beauty and truth of the book of Isaiah. Lord, thank you for the vision of Jesus that we gain from this passage. And I pray, Lord, that we would hope in that all week, Lord, that the vision of Jesus sitting on the throne in the tent of David, seeking justice and swiftly establishing righteousness would sustain our hope. Lord, I pray that you would continue to be with Jonathan and Monica and Elijah and Evangeline during this time. We thank you so much for them. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our benediction this morning is going to come from the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these, these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.